Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Okay. You're teaching us to lie! Okay. All along I was like, you were born bad, but it's not! It's the nurturing! Stop. The Canadian boss has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have... Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, apparently the social science menarche literature has some fundamental flaws. Did you even know there was a social science menarche literature? Are are you <laughs> talking about menarchy? Like like me, like onset of menstruation? Is it is it that how it's pronounced? It's, yeah. <laughs> Is there a replication crisis in the literature on periods? Is it all just one big question mark? I, so, <laughs> I, I don't know the details. This is from Twitter. But apparently, <laughs> there's some, I don't know. Yeah, there's sampling errors. Uh, yeah, not taking into account certain ages. I don't know the deal. I was just, so it's monarchy? Yeah, that's my understanding, but now you have me doubting. Like the last time I heard that word was probably spoken out loud was in my uh, uh, adolescent development class that that I took in I, college. But. I think the well, so I mean, my interest in it comes from being a big fan as a kid of "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret." <laughs> oh, I love that book. Isn't that weird? Like, I think a lot of guys just like like have memories of like reading that book and liking it a lot. It's it's very strange, but it made me too interested, according to my daughter, in her when she would get her period. You know, back when that happened, and weirdly, she didn't want that to be a part of our relationship. Me I, kind of obsessively I, focused on her period, like when. Have she you gotten it yet? Have you gotten it yet? You, <laughs> I know, you're, you probably really want to have it. You're probably jealous of your friends. It's like no, not at all. Actually, it's not. Nobody feels that way. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I was interested in it because we were sort of like in a religious school, and they kind of didn't like they didn't forbid us from reading it, but they had like the boys' book and the girls' book, and like, well, I was like, well wait, I'm not supposed to read the girl's book? Like, I'm going to fucking read the girl's book. The reason I think that it goes beyond just you, me, like, it had a, it was in Deadpool. Like, there was a reference <laughs> to it in Deadpool, you remember? And South Park has had a couple references to it in their episodes. So, I don't know, maybe it's just our our generation, the, <laughs> the Karens. The Karens. <laughs> So, well, I was not aware of the controversies in the literature. I wonder if it's just like about, you know, estimating the age. 
There was that there. I, I don't know if this is what's at question, but there was this thing called a secular trend in the onset of menstruation that over time it appeared as if girls or it appears as if girls are getting it earlier and earlier um, for a variety of reasons. Um, maybe that's all. Maybe that's all fake. Maybe it's. I, I think you're right. I'm looking at the pre, pre, monarchy. That's monarchy. Yeah. That's so funny because <laughs> I, I can't tell this story, but it involves me yelling out this word uh, in in an in like inappropriate proper... time. In an inappropriate time, but, uh, but, but and in I a was proper just... French accent. Rechercher le monarchie. Why would it be monarchy? It's not a... It's probably Greek. I guess, yeah. Uh, I I'm just surprised there is a like a whole social science literature on it, which is like you know I would think it would be a it's a medical thing, and it's really not something that social science would be involved in. But you know, this is at at the expense of research on wet dreams. You know, it's like when's the last time you read a paper on wet dreams? Exactly, it's it's the guys, <laughs> the war against boys, like <laughs> Christina Hoff Summers said. By the way, she'll be joining me for, for our your annual Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah, next next episode. Ah, exciting! I look forward to uh, stopping it halfway through. <laughs> she'll be trying to wh- whip up hysteria about the latest like <laughs> crisis at Oberlin. Uh, uh, all right, so what are we talking about today? Oh, God, we have a good paper to talk about um, by Alan Fisk called this was brought to my attention at first by neuroskeptic but then you suggested it It because of neuroskeptic as well um and it's coming through with some serious some serious articles the lexical fallacy in emotion research mistaking vernacular words for psychological entities it's uh this year right psych review yeah brand new psych review paper by Alan Fisk, who, what do you think about this? He might be the most underrated researcher right now. You know, I don't, I love him. So I'm very happy to, to say great things about him. I don't know him personally. I don't know how much, like, he's an anthropologist. So I don't know, like, in my mind, he's like a huge deal. Uh, but maybe for all I know in anthropology, he's like this, you know, redheaded stepchild who deals with social psychologists all the time. But his, his sister is a social psychologist as well. Is that Susan Fisk? Yeah. It, it seems like everybody's named Fisk. It's like Susan Fisk, Alan Fisk, uh, Donald, Donald Fisk. Fisk. Is Donald I, Fisk related to them? I'm embarrassed to not know. Like, I suspect that it's their dad, but. They're like the Kennedys of uh, social sciences. Yeah, yeah. He's their father. Yeah. Wow. I thought Joe Henrik had this title for a long time, but now he seems everybody loves Joe Henrik. Everybody knows about him. Yeah. And there's a guy named Dan Fessler who also does great work from an anthropological tradition. Yeah. Um, but Alan Page Fisk, his relational model stuff. And then he wrote the book on violence with Page. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, uh, so I don't know. I hope he gets all the credit he deserves. We, we've case. talked about that paper, and I talked about it in the Very Bad Wizard book with him and Tej. I think that stuff is is awesome, but I think it gets totally overlooked in favor of the founda- moral foundations theory. Uh, but, yeah. But and I, uh, to be honest, I think that this the relational model is on much firmer ground. Uh, like, you know, 
earmuffs <laughs> jesse graham <laughs> i mean not that they're necessarily in conflict but i but i think that that yeah and we'll get into i think one of the reasons that that he should be so well respected is just the sheer the the scope of of data that that he is bringing to the other social sciences honestly it's hard for us to have somebody from anthropology bridge the gaps between psychology and anthropology there's very different cultures and i think he's done more uh in that way than than most people maybe rick schwader go uh, ahead just announce your dog on the podcast people love to know that it's <laughs> this is my fucking dog there's a ups <laughs> truck outside right now that's just kind of crawling along the street trying to mess up this podcast it's like you might as well just take out a leaf blower right now. And- I think that I think the two psychologists for beers have sent the UPS truck to sabotage our numbers. <laughs> they they did. They're just sending packages, not even to me, but just to my neighbors. <laughs> Charlie, sh- shut the fuck up. Uh. No. <laughs> That was a little like no fuck you. That was like, I got soft testing. Yeah. Got. Yeah. <laughs> For those listening, still, Tamler is having a heart attack in front of us. This is. This <laughs> probably will be. This or like when I look and see my daughter on, my, on her phone, like again, <laughs> <laughs> just suddenly grab my heart. And you then should sh- train your daughter. You should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You want to give a dog update before we get to our opening segment? Yeah, I have a brand new puppy. I actually calculated he's, he's barely 11 weeks old and we oh. named him Ozymandias. Actually, like after like at least three different references. So I am underslept and I am currently hating puppies because they're a fucking handful. Why do people include rain? Like when they say rainbows and puppies, puppies aren't all that great unless you're just looking at them on a video. They're so cute. But yeah, they are. They're a bit of a handful. You're also like a germ freak. So. Yeah, dude. So I can't, and also I can't wait till we cut off his balls. Yeah, yeah. you could just do it right now, like during <laughs> <the> break. <laughs> so for our yeah for our intro segment, I take it we're going to talk about two main things: the impeachment hearings and the Democratic debates. Yeah, <laughs> is that right? Exactly. This is your dream opening. <laughs> where segment. Where do you want to start? <laughs> There was a funny tweet I saw. It was like, Sondland's testimony was devastating, according to many faculty members I've spoken to. <laughs> Scott, <laughs> Scott Shapiro, that's his name, on Twitter. Uh, it was just, just like, nobody's paying attention to this stuff. But I had about five different faculty come up and said, holy shit, you should have seen the hearings. He's a goner for sure now. <laughs> this is going to do it. Sick burns. Trump is out of here. The Republicans can't support him anymore. Even the Republicans. Uh, they'll, they'll finally have to admit. <laughs> yeah. We were wrong the whole time. You can have Merrick Garland on the court. And then the Democratic debates. Yeah. What did you think of um, Cory Booker's performance last night? Uh, fascinating. <laughs> Which one is he? It's the black guy. <laughs> yeah, good. And I know Andrew Yang is the 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 Asian one. Yeah. Um, and I know Elizabeth Warren is the woman one. <laughs> the Native American candidate. <laughs> Your and favorite. She is actually my favorite, although I'm a little cooler than I was before. In any case, we're not going to really talk about that, right? <laughs> no. 
<laughs> no, although we pre- by the way that this episode has gone, we might as well <laughs> at this point. Yeah. I like I don't know if we should mention that you didn't you send like four dick pics to Amy Klobuchar? Is that what we're going to talk about? Is that my brother? I don't know who Amy Klobuchar is, so I'm just going to yes and your (laughs) reference. (laughs) I'm not sure that's yes anding to say I don't know who that is. (laughs) She sent them back. Return to sender. (laughs) It's actually my brother. He he likes her. He has a weird (laughs) attraction to her. Anyway, um, so let's talk about our real opening segment which was a a shower idea it was an idea (laughs) i came up with in the shower because we didn't like our opening segment ideas and it also sounds like an idea that i would have on adderall so maybe shower adderall (laughs) (laughs) the idea was to connect the various social political factions in our current culture with the factions in our field so to find the analogs, the equivalent for me and in, in philosophy, you in psychology. And I texted it to you. You said, oh, yeah, that'll be great. I said it could be fun. And then I started trying. <laughs> this required me to Wikipedia various things like, quote, political factions, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're really uh, not qualified for this exactly. Uh, but should we get going with it? Let's let's get going. You um, want to go first? Sure. Let me let me start by saying that there <laughs> the areas in psychology are super nebulous, so I just be bear with me. <laughs> um but I think the clear, the only one, in fact one that you mentioned in your text to me uh, that has to be characterized in some manner or another is not an area it's just a group of people and that group of people are the open science proponents of the world mm-hmm. and uh the the twitter heavy correctors of all wrong um the the people who like to talk about uh p-hacking not being a moral flaw but nonetheless treated as a moral flaw every time they accuse somebody um these these are clearly uh, the Antifas of my of my field. Oh, um, really? Antifas. <laughs> wow. So the you're Antif- now you're by this you mean like the Sanjay Srivastava. San, Sanjay, the methodological terrorist number one. Yeah. Um, uh, Daniel Lakin's Daniel uh, Lakin's Samin yeah. Vizier, Yuri Simonson, all the people that you've taken to following, um, yeah. and this is why they're Antifa. They are Antifa because uh, the the establishment loves to point to them as uh, as people who have lost their way in the quest for something good. They have become the very thing that they might hate, and uh, the maybe not the very thing they might hate, but but in this case, they clearly have lofty goals. And then they spend their time uh, making other people feel really bad about the errors that they may or may not have made in all of my pre-2002 papers. I mean, in all of their pre <laughs> I think they, Antifa is a little strong. Like, I, Yeah, I, I well, would... I'm, I'm, being, I'm being hyperbolic uh, very much on purpose because I love all the people that I just mentioned. <laughs> I would give them a different label. Uh, See, I was considering going all the way right, but they're not that way. They're... they're uh, th- they're no. disruptors within a field of people who already might have considered themselves good scientists. And they are they're calling us to to attention with the occasional Molotov cocktail. 
Yeah, although they were working within the paradigm. That's how, that's the reason I, I Antifa is not working from within a paradigm. Uh, Antifa is, they're trying <laughs> to destroy where... the paradigm. They're not. What would you have gone with for them? I Actually, th- this idea came up. I was talking with uh, one of Yoel's uh, and Mickey's guests, Jessica Flake, and she was saying how Yoel is kind of woke about some of the methodological problems in <laughs> Uh, psychology and I was like yeah there's woke but there's there's also like I I think he's more like a white feminist like he's still working from within the establishment still bound by a lot of the same premises a lot of the same privilege so yeah actually I might as well just say who my white feminists are because <laughs> I think it's similar it's the experimental philosophers right <laughs> they kind of pose as these rebels and mavericks challenging the establishment, but at least more than they like to admit, they are still working within the same kind of boundaries of what's possible. Um, and this is unfair, but they're they're doing their part to prop up the status quo, even as they seem to be challenging it by accepting the terms of the debate, by accepting the terms, say, of the knowledge debate, and then checking to see if, you know, cross-culturally people have the same intuitions or whatever. Right, right. They're like, well, you know, one outstanding question that has not yet been answered is what the ontological status of tables is. is Since time immemorial, philosophers have been talking about this, but nobody's bothered to actually ask (laughs) members members of the Trobriander uh, tribe um, what what they thought about the ontological status. So we asked them three items. What is the ontological status of tables? (laughs) Exactly. and then, um, wh- whereas they're not questioning whether we should be asking what the ontological status of tables is in the first <laughs> place or whether, you know, what the necessary and sufficient conditions of knowledge are and all of that. So uh, they are the white feminists. And and so is Yoel. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, I, I am, I'm almost saddened that you had to, to caveat with this is unfair. This is profoundly unfair. This is an intro segment. We, this is... <laughs> Yeah, this, this is, is not even close to to to. Uh, There's no fucking some... caveats for this. There's no. <laughs> I am directly insulting people that I respect deeply. Speaking of people I respect deeply and people who made it in both categories, I am uh, now. You may not know this, but I am um, friends with some personality psychologists, mm-hmm. uh, and Sanjay they? has made it into two two, yeah. two lists of mine now. The personality psychologists, this is uh, uh, actually much more uh, kind uh, characterization than my Antifa comments. Personality psychologists are like Gen Xers. They've been around and they've seen, uh, right, they, they had to watch all the controversy happen about personality psychology back in the 60s when it was taken to be damning criticisms from for, from social psychologists who you know the the newcomers who said personality psychology is full of shit it's the power and of the situation people power of the situation they just lurked they just took a step back into the background worked their asses off developed new tools new methodologies um they basically they're the larry and the sergey they built google um and they're the nirvana. They changed the face of music. They have given us a whole bunch of wonderful things. And now they have to sit and watch like as social psychologists fight with the methodological terrorists. And they can just say like, well, fine, you guys go at it. 
we we've solved a lot of these problems already. So so they're they're the lurkers. They're not they're they they smirk as we fight over p hacking. Yeah, although they might not smirk after our second segment on the lexical fallacy, but <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll see. That's just that's just what uh, uh, is. TJ would say. No, just kidding. <laughs> what is ISTJ? It's, I don't know. It's my Myers-Briggs typology. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, all right. Well, I haven't... I, my uh, neoliberal establishment, you know, these are like the centrists, like Biden and Hillary and your girl, Klobuchar, and and also like never-Trumpers, you know, the David right. Frums, uh, uh, they they've been in charge for a long time. They're a little complacent, but they still have way more power and sway than we like to think. And they are in my field, the analytic, the armchair analytic philosophers. You know, they still kind of like we can all talk, especially online, about all the different ways in which philosophy is getting challenged. But they still have a lot more power than you would think from blogs and Twitter and philosophy twitter to the extent that that's a thing you know maybe they're not as active on social media but they still run a lot of they have more power than anybody else it's true they're like the uh they're like the mr robot opening the doors to the boardroom and everybody's looking at you they're, they're going to make the decisions about whether or not you have a career <laughs> exactly right and they don't could, need to they don't need to show you how much power they have right. they just do have it and you can have a five nine. You can have like a big hack or whatever. They're still going to end up on top. You know, there's no beating them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah. Um, this is a little too close to home because I don't know at what point this is a metaphor anymore. But social psychologists are very much the SJWs of the world. I mean, they they are progressive to the point where progressive is a goal. Um, rather than a means to an end. Um, social psychologists uh, will jump to remind everybody the deep, deeply important values of inclusion uh, and uh, the proper pronunciation of ethnic names. Um, they will ask you your gender identity, then ask you again to just make sure you're comfortable with the one you expressed the first time. <laughs> They'll have like he, him in their Twitter profiles. <laughs> they have he in their Twitter profiles. Yeah. They, uh, they, they are very much uh, um, de- desiring to bring, a, bring about deep changes to the structures of society w- one uh, l- linguistic correction at a time. They also like they whine a lot. Like they're constantly whining about how hard their life is and their and the job is and and they get mad at at Mickey Inslet if he says I actually like my job. <laughs> it's fun. Well, that's because you don't understand where they're coming from. That's clear. Um, from I come from such a place of privilege in philosophy that I couldn't understand what a social psychologist has to go through. Uh, that is true. We do get jobs at like three times the rate. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's it's true that it's hard to know where <laughs> one begins and the other ends. Um, all right, so for the technocrats. Um, these are people and they're policy wonks, you know, and they tend to be Silicon Valley people. They have all these high tech solutions for societal problems. I have as their analog 
like the the kind of hardcore philosophy of science people, not the big broad question philosophy of science people that I read and enjoy, but these are people who are they're deep into the weeds, you know, it's <laughs> philosophers of biology, of cognitive science, uh computer right. science and like so their the writing there is dense and it's complex and it's steeped in all sorts of terminology and it's very hard to know with them if they're doing really good work with really cool ideas or if they're full of shit and i imagine it's some like uh, element of both um <laughs> in that in that group but it's it's like the technocrats you know like if you i i don't know like i can't put in the effort of trying to figure out like to what extent they're on to something or not but i have a little bit of an aversion to them it's probably just my bias and not anything grounded in in something real well it's hard to know you know we've talked about like it's hard when when we're incapable of evaluating papers in our own field it can be frustrating but like i think that you're your description is very much like a certain kind of cognitive psychologist. You mentioned cognitive science. Like yeah. there are people who plug away at doing, say, like, you know, computational models of neural networks. And, and yeah. I don't know if they're right or not. I have no fucking idea. <laughs> right. and, and like they've they've machine learning. Yeah. Or they're studying some, you know, some super specific uh, aspect of memory or attentional processing and um i understand that much and it's interesting but the world never took interest so they they don't but they don't care they're just plugging away at their research they're not malcolm gladwell isn't writing about them no right but but they've never wanted to be written about in that way like yeah they're just happy going to their conferences (laughs) usually somewhere in like some awesome place in eastern europe or germany they can understand each other presumably and so (laughs) good for all of them I have no I, They're probably secretly making more progress than we'll ever. <laughs> we'll ever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. My my next one, possibly my last one, is the uh, the cognitive neuroscientists and uh, social neuroscientists in my field. They're they're the Chads and Stacys of my field. They are <laughs> they are uh, widely viewed as the cool ones. They get to study the brain, and and every psychologist. When, whenever they're pressed for for defending their uh, their field as a science, they can just quickly point to a brain. Um, but they are the Chads and Stacys in the sense that while everybody uh, understands that they get all the attention and that people people think of them as awesome and true scientists, um, most most psychologists view them with deep suspicion and resentment. Um, so while, <laughs> while being at the same time uh, envious of the the attention and the grant funds that, that are given to these Chaz and Stacey neuroscientists, um, they secretly think that it's a mistake to even be approaching the field through the lens of a neuroscientist because behind closed doors, they'll just complain that uh, Chaz and Stacey's are stupid. So, okay, just to get clear on who this is, I, I like that a lot. I like that analogy. Is this like the Josh Greens, the Rebecca Saxes? Exactly. There's a whole, because there are cognitive neuroscientists who might fit more into your technocrat mold, and then there's the ones who, who 
uh, emerged sort of a, a, that integrated social psychology with kind of neuroscience. And so they're studying, you know, like, did you know that when you, that your self-esteem is located in your left, you know, uh, orbitofrontal cortex, right? Like, cause we did an fMRI. So for a long time, they were getting all the money and all the attention. And then, and then for a long time, people were, were secretly like they were hiring them and they were like lauding them as the savior of our science and then secretly behind their back uh, resenting them and hoping that their funding would dry up (laughs) (laughs) i don't know who that makes the rest of us incels yeah no but uh that's actually that is such a good analogy i don't know if we have chads and stacy's i don't think philosophy because they're if we did yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, don't, like, I, I think we used to. Before there, all the Chads got accused. Let's let's be honest. You never had Stacy's. <laughs> you had Chads. Right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've definitely never had Stacy's. Um, and without Stacy's, maybe it's hard to have Chads, too. I don't know. <laughs> I have a couple other quick ones. Do you have any more? You know, I was trying to characterize evolutionary psychologists, at least of a certain ilk, because there there are certainly a lot of evolutionary psychologists who just look at, say, animal evolution. But but the kind that we know that we're talking about, like the kind who 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 (laughs) I think this is obvious. What do you have for them? I I don't know. I you know, I put them. I was going to say they're in the they're the alt right, but that's just on the nose. This is <laughs> no, I think they're more like the Ben Shapiro, like that's, Dave that's Rubens. What I meant by, that's what I meant by alt right. <laughs> I don't think they're alt right. They, you don't think, they, or or maybe Sam Harris in certain. Oh, they're moves, they, they're, they're my the intellectual dark web. Yeah, they're intellectual dark web. Exactly, they're IDW people. That's right. Yeah, so secret alt right people. Um, <laughs> hi, Christina. <laughs> So they're, they're like they're like Scooby Doo villains. At some point, they will reveal that they are all right when their emails, you know, decrying decrying the. Uh, I mean, the, I think the, that really, like I think that might be the most accurate one. Evolutionary <laughs> psychologists are the IDWs, uh, <laughs> you know, like because they also kind of frame their views as brave, like <laughs> right, right, and uh, they that they are doing the Lord's work by telling everybody how polyamory is perfectly reasonable. <laughs> Yeah, so I have, like, there, there's this kind of philosopher, like, the Notre Dame has a lot of these that are, they're not exactly establishment because they're working on philosophy and they're still just focused on f- philosophy that's kind of outdated, um, like old metaphysics debates, philosophy of language debates that are kind of old news, but they're, st- like, if you talk to one of them, It'll be like you're in a time machine <laughs> traveled back to like the 70s. <laughs> it's like Jay's it's like Jay store stopped updating for them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I they're like the neocons for me uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> of, of philosophy because uh, uh, they still have some power, but kind of the, the debate has moved on and even the establishment has kind of moved on. Right. Well, I found this whole conversation deeply offensive on many, many levels. <laughs> as uh, will almost but, everybody who listens to it. <laughs> well, especially since I am actually a social psychologist, I've damned myself. I don't know who what I am. Uh, well, you are. You're weirdly secret. People may not know this, but you're a, a, also a weirdly secret. You, you have weirdly secret SJW concerns. 
and weirdly secret uh, continental philosophy uh, affinities. Uh, affinities. Yes, yeah, for sure. Right. I, is, yeah. is it that secret? No, uh, but you know, maybe first time listeners. All right, um, we'll be back to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> if if there are any listeners left, <laughs> we have not burned every single bridge. Well, we either burned a bridge or we've profoundly bored people who know nothing of the stereotypes <laughs> that we're discussing. Exactly. It's just, <laughs> it's, this is no, nothing for no people. All right. We'll be right back. Okay, let's take a quick break to talk about GiveWell. You know, Thanksgiving is in a couple of days, and one of the things I'm grateful for is the people at GiveWell who are devoting their professional lives to identifying charities that do the most good. Because when we give to an organization, it's very hard to know what that donation is actually accomplishing. Gauging that takes a lot of time, a lot of resources that most of us don't have. I know I don't have it, but GiveWell does. GiveWell spends 20,000 hours every year researching which charities are most effective, which ones can give you the biggest bang for your philanthropic buck. And then they recommend a short list of the best charities they've found and share them with donors like you. GiveWell's recommended charities work to prevent children from dying of cheaply preventable diseases and help people in dire poverty. You can treat intestinal parasites for less than a dollar. You can provide a malaria treatment to a child for less than $10 and save a life for a few thousand dollars. It's a beautiful thing. And you can learn just how much good your donation could do by visiting givewell.org slash verybadwizards. Their recommendations are free for anyone to use, and GiveWell doesn't take any cut of your donation. And get this. If you haven't donated to GiveWell yet, if you're a first-time donor, GiveWell will match your donation up to $1,000 if you go to givewell.org slash verybadwizards. Once again, first-time donors will have their donations matched up to $1,000 if they go to givewell.org slash verybadwizards. Thanks to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the very predictable time in the episode where we tell everybody how thankful we are, um, especially now that Thanksgiving is coming up. Is, is we're extra grateful because it's official. 
Our gratitude is official this month. Thank you for all the support that you guys have given us. We really appreciate it. We appreciate all the messages, all the tweets, all of the uh, discussions that you guys have. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com or you can tweet to us at verybadwizards at tamler at peas. You can join in on the discussion, the lively discussion on the subreddit, reddit.com. Uh, slash r slash very bad wizards you can follow our instagram you can interact interact with us in a more asymmetric way by leaving us a review and telling us what you think about us on itunes does spotify do reviews mm, i don't think so do they no, no, i don't think so yeah um but yes thank you we really appreciate all your messages as, as we always say we read them all we can't possibly answer them all but but we feel your support and we've gotten a lot of really nice emails lately. And I think there were there was like a month or, or something or a couple months where we weren't getting ones that came from the site. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was going to spam for some reason. We, yeah, so, but we figured that out and now we seem to be getting it. But if you want to just be safe, send it to verybadwizards at gmail.com from your email. But... I think we're getting most of them now because I checked the spam folder recently and uh, there was none of those in there and we were getting them. So, And if we missed your email because it went to spam, we're sorry. But you probably wouldn't know it. Cause... <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, anyway, if you'd like to support us in a more tangible fashion, you can do that in two ways. You can give us a one-time donation on PayPal, or you can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters. We're so grateful for people who have done both of those things. And like Dave said, there's a whole holiday just created to honor how grateful we are to you for, for what you do and for the support that you give. And we try to reciprocate a little bit uh, as much as we can with some bonus material on our Patreon page for our Patreon supporters. Dave, you just did one. You said you were going to do it, and I didn't know that it was going to happen that quickly, but like... It was very quick. It was the most efficient recording I've ever had uh, because Barry <laughs> Lamb is a professional. <laughs> <laughs> More efficient than this recording? So slightly. Yeah, yeah, so Barry Lamb and I talked about an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Barry Lamb is the um, host, actually the producer of High Fi Nation, a philosophy podcast that's now on Slate's network that is w like way, way, way better produced than anything I could ever do. But uh, we talked about uh, one of our favorite Star Trek episodes, Ship in a Bottle, has to do with transporter machine with uh, holodecks and simulations and the nature of consciousness and reality. And it was super fun. And we're going to do more probably. All right, good. Wow. So, and I want at least one Twitter user said it was her favorite bonus episode ever, which I take deep offense to. And I think Jesse Graham and Natalia Washington should uh, <laughs> take offense to it as well, given the like six hours of Twin Peaks bonus material. She she was definitely trying to hurt you. Don't don't take it personally. Because <laughs> she was just trying to hurt me. Yeah. Oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, it's, but but we appreciate that. We we also have one. Once you get back from Dubai, is that where you're going? Qatar, Qatar, <laughs> Menarche. <laughs> we 
to get back from <laughs> not, Menarche. Not Menarche. I can't believe it. <laughs> you're going to watch the remainder of Dark, right, while you're there and on the plane. On the plane. And, and then we're going to do a bonus episode as soon as you get back. In um, all German with subtitles. Excited. <laughs> um i i i follow through the very bad wizards account because i don't have my own instagram account i follow the the showrunner and creator of dark um this was a tip from my daughter and he posts pictures of the third season which is going to be released i think in june and um it was a wrap for mikkel today oh when is Mikkel? <laughs> and we've been really enjoying Mr. Robot as well. We're not going to do a Patreon yet on Mr. Robot, but I, I, I think I have to talk to Tamler about it. So we figured we might as well record it. So if you stick around after the theme music, we're going to have a little mini, mini Mr. Robot discussion of season four, episode seven. Cool. So thank you again, everybody, um, for all your support. We really appreciate it. And um, let's get on to the main segment. Okay, now let's talk about our uh, main topic of today, and that is this paper that we mentioned before by the psychological anthropologist from UCLA, Alan Page Fisk, who we both already uh, gushed about. Um, called the lexical fallacy in emotion research, mistaking vernacular words for psychological entities. I think this is so. This is a, a paper in Psychological Review, which is our biggest, well, actually oldest, I think, journal in the in the field. So this is where you publish theory articles that that uh, would cut across, uh, be of importance enough to cut across. Um, various subfields that would be of interest to everybody so it's like a it's a it's probably the most prestigious outlet we have for what it's worth um and this is an article that is focused on what i think is a straightforward problem but one that i think has been ignored as he points out and that is when you're studying if you decide that what you want to do is understand human emotions and you decide like how you're going to carve up the emotional world uh, you you think to yourself okay like i want to study emotion x emotion x what is it it's an emotion that you have in your language so you say well i want to study anger i want to study fear i want to study jealousy what fisk is arguing is that we are making a deep mistake by relying on our language to point us in the direction of what what is scientifically true so he calls this the lexical fallacy. He says, we're relying on the words for emotions that we have in our language. And in an implicit, sometimes explicit way, but often implicit way, we're assuming that if our, were, if our language has a word for an emotion, then that emotion is the right unit to study. Our language carves nature at its joints, right? What, what philosophers would call a natural kind. So if you ask the question, how many emotions are there? You would simply look at all of the emotion terms in your language's lexicon and maybe narrow them down uh, into a family and say, well, clearly there are, there, there are whatever, six, seven basic emotions. He thinks that this is a, uh, uh, a mistake because, for one, there are 7,000 languages on this planet. Who's to say that our language uh, happened to capture the right unit of analysis? And, uh, and it turns out when you look at other languages— they carve up the emotional space very differently. So it's not at all clear that um, every language shares 
uh, a word that would encode for the emotion anger in the way that, that our languages do. And it, it turns out there's not a whole lot of research on this. This is something that is has been deeply concerning to me um, as somebody who studies emotions because the question of how many emotions are there and how we categorize them is is one that's actually, you know, at least at least since uh, the Greeks, uh, Descartes famously made a list of what he thought were basic emotions. And we've been using these categories of emotion ever since by saying, oh, what emotion do you study? I study anger or I study love, assuming that it is actually capturing something real, right? Real here, meaning universal, like an actual aspect of psychology. When in reality, we might just be reifying our emotional concepts, the ones that are idiosyncratic to our language. What I call disgust might be a whole set of emotions, and what some other language calls disgust might not be any of those. Right? Or maybe they have a word that if, if you had to pick a word, it was uh, to translate as disgust, but it picks out all these other different features of human experience. Um, right. So, this, Yeah, this is, yeah. like right before you start, this I just want to emphasize how deep and distressing a problem <laughs> this is for a field like ours like and it goes beyond just studying emotions it is you know, we don't have we right. can't look at emotions through microscopes or telescopes we don't see the boundaries of of emotions like we would of rocks or atoms what we have are a set of methods that may be leading us uh, astray quite a bit so i think i mean one of the things i'd like to talk about is what if he's right, you know? Yeah. What it would really mean from within the field as a psychologist, as you are studying emotion, like what would you do? Um, so should we talk about his opening example? Um, yeah. Right. So the, he, the, the emotion the, that he discusses. Yeah. So he yeah. says he was noticing that he felt this way and a colleague felt this way that he was watching movies with his daughter and he found himself kind of tearing up at, at certain scenes. I know you and I have talked about this, how we'll start crying during like a Simpsons yeah. or something or Pixar movies. I'm just, I can be a basket case. The, the closest kind of word that we have to describe that feeling is to be moved. It's not, it, it, it it's, it's the best we can do to describe that feeling and to try to figure out like sort of what it means because it can come at displays of acts of courage or acts where family is coming together or it's not so much what this feeling is. It is how he wants to or how he has approached studying it. And one of the first things he does is choose a different term so he's he intentionally chooses the term kama muta which is i guess a sanskrit term he, he says this is what i'm calling this phenomenon that i think might be a real natural kind but i but i'm not sure so for now it'll be a construct that i will call kama muta and by calling it that it allows him to stipulate the features of this emotion without inviting any kind of confusion because we don't we don't have any associations with kamamuta and so he he then can stipulate what it typically is and so he does that he says uh it is evoked by a sudden intensification of communal sharing relationship it is momentary 
It is subjectively positive in various senses yet to be resolved. When sufficiently intense, often characterized by some of the following sensations and signs, a warm or pleasant or other pleasant feeling in the center of the chest, tears or most eyes being choked up, goosebumps, feeling buoyant, making an exclamation such as awe, like with your puppy, putting one or both palms to the chest, and it generates motives to devote and commit to to communal sharing. Um, And that is one of... Alan Fisk's frameworks. What's interesting about this is A, I think he is onto something about this phenomenon, but B, the way he goes about trying to study it, labeling it as something that doesn't correspond to an actual word that we have in our language. You know, I don't know whether he named it this before before embarking on his naturalistic observations, but at least uh, potentially before he, he mentions in the paper, one of the first things that he did was one, start asking people about instances in which they were moved. Like what kinds of things do other people report, right? Like do, are other people saying similar things to me? And then he actually started doing um, ethnographies. So he got, he got his students to do 10-week focused participant observation studies of practices and institutions where we expected to find such an emotion. Um, so all just pure observation, and this this paper just is a nice complement to the to the paper we read, um, yeah, the rosin uh, the rosin paper on on methodology, right? So like, uh, and one of my favorite parts of this paper is him saying like like let's take seriously the need to first of all go look at people in a careful detailed way and see if they are at all experiencing seeming to experience similar kinds of emotions. And only then, I think, can we say, well, this this is a candidate for being something that we should put a term to. Right. But do you see a, a connection between that and intentionally not labeling it with a word that we have in our language? I think so. I think that, that there we bring to bear so much conceptual knowledge that is probably, like a lot of which is just cultural, that um that he probably avoid as soon as he could avoided right avoided calling it moved moved is an interesting case because we don't have the baggage that we might have with an uh, emotion like anger or or fear or sadness because we use that word a lot moved isn't isn't so much like that um so i think he had a little bit uh more leeway to start studying instances of this without having the baggage of of a cultural concept so here's a, the way I understand this approach is it's when you're studying it, you can and you're interviewing people and you're just observing, you're doing your ethnographies, you're doing these very unstructured interviews. You can use whatever terms yeah. you think are helpful. It's just when you start doing it in a more formal scientific context for scientific journals and for running uh, controlled experiments that you want to avoid labeling it because that's when the the lexical fallacy is most damaging. And he goes through a list of of why it's potentially misleading or distorting. Um, for one thing, it, it it makes researchers think that self-reports are going to be more accurate than they really are. But I think in that initial stage, it would make no sense to try to 
talk to people about Kamamuta without <laughs> right. them having any knowledge of what that is. So I think right. Kamamuta is for them. It's for right. the, the the scientific communication. Exactly. Why? Yeah, the communication, right. Let's talk about why he wants to do that. What's wrong with just describing this as the emotion of being moved and studying it in that way, but then using that term rather than uh, kamamuta as your initial construct? It's such a tricky field, but but I think that that the reason to pick a word that does, does not exist allows people... Um, the freedom to report because let's get straight what the claim isn't. The claim isn't that we can't talk about our emotional experiences. Um, he specifically believes that we may very well have universal emotional experiences. Um, it's just that when we report those, if we rely on the single word uh, descriptions of emotion, we might be bringing a whole bunch of other information to bear and we might be missing distinctions or we might be uh, actually combining things that could be distinct feelings. So he wants people to be able to talk about the, you know, the consequent, the the causes, like what happened that made you feel moved, what um, what what happened while you were feeling moved, what happened after, what was this specific feeling, like bodily feeling that you had, and all those might be distorted if you put a label that's already used onto it. So we have like a very clear script of what it means to feel anger or what it means to feel jealousy. And we might be unreliable narrators of our own emotional experience when we uh, are talking about a word like anger, like a, uh, we, we might be actually less objective. I think at the heart of it, it's that it's like, in order to be really objective, let's remove the influence of this uh, cultural knowledge because what we want to know is what's universal to human experiences. And in a, in a culture, it would be one thing if every single language had the word that encoded for that very specific thing. But that's just not the case. So we want to, to try our best to find all of the uh, more objective criteria that might be evidence for whether or not being moved in this case is an emotion. When you're honing in on an emotion, it, it totally makes sense that you might have disagreements about what its various features are. Um, but there can be productive disagreements about that and unproductive ones. And the unproductive ones are when you're actually talking about two different things. So he gives an example of uh, a blackbird and and their properties like are they omnivorous do they where do they put their nests and if british and american uh, biologists or ornithologists. Uh, ornithologists if they have if if they if one of them uses the term blackbird to refer to one kind of bird and another one uh, uses the term blackbird to a different species of bird then their disagreements over what the blackbird does and what their behavior is are, is going to be unproductive because they don't know that they're talking about two different things. And I guess what I understood this terminology to do, this not using your own words allows you to do, is be very careful about stipulating what you think the construct is. Once you go outside your own language to to label 
a phenomenon that you think might be an emotion, but you're not sure, um, that allows everybody to know that this is purely stip- stipulatory. I don't know if that's a word. Uh, it, it just makes the lexical fallacy not possible because nobody has any associations with what kama muta would be. Is it just that what you see it is, a, that the word is useful because it's merely stipulation? Yes, that's what I understood. That it's apparently, like, everybody knows that it's mere stipulation. And- uh, yeah, yeah, but at, this, at the point at which um, they move beyond what they consider mere stipulation, which is where he is at the stage with Kamamuta, where, where he thinks he has sufficient evidence, then that term is serving to not confuse the, the construct by not using a, a, a term that's common to a, to a language in their emotional lexicon, because then they won't assume a whole other host of things about the thing that you're studying. I mean, this, hap- this happens with disgust, right? This, like, some people really do mean disgust to be this broad social emotion, and some mean it to be merely grossed out. And when I give talks about disgust, like I'm trying to say, well, by disgust, I mean this very specific grossed out emotion, not the like, you know, I'm disgusted at, at the actions of our president. Um, but people leave remembering that kind of disgust because it's so like it's such a part of our language. And so it does a bad job of communicating, even though I already believe that there's evidence of, of disgust. So I think it's serving multiple purposes. And I, I think you're right that that it helps at the stipulation stage. Um, but I also think it helps even once you believe you've collected enough evidence. Can we say just for our listeners and possibly also f- for me, because I think I understand it and then I sometimes think I don't, but what psychologists mean when they call something a construct? So <laughs> that's a good question. Our use of the term construct is pretty broad, um, but what we tend, what we, what we want uh to discover our true features of psychology. So when we stipulate that something like extroversion exists, we want we really want to believe that what what we're studying is a true thing in the world that there is this actual distinction that is present in nature that some organisms particularly humans are more extroverted than not. But we can't measure that directly. Like there is no there's no right. direct measurement of it. There's no blood test for There's no blood exactly. And so we have to we have to essentially say, well, what what would be decent evidence that this exists? And so we come up with measures, but we know we're dealing with a theoretical construct. Um, in the same way that before we had actual evidence of seeing atoms or electrons or whatever, the the atom was a theoretical construct. It just it seemed to fit the data. It seemed to be useful when telling this causal story about what goes on. Psychologists are trying for that, but unlike Adams, there's no hope of like actually <laughs> of actually having a, a microscope that will will show us an atom. And so often we mean some sort of uh, variable, some some feature of psychology that we have to use multiple methods to triangulate and and, and kind of discover that it might be underlying everything, even though we don't have a direct measure of it. So it's a theoretical entity that you believe exists, would like to provide evidence that it exists, knowing that you'll never be able to establish it like you can establish the existence of atoms. But, right. But so then something like kamamuta could be a construct, 
And then also something like disgust could be a construct, right? Let me. That's and right. so, yeah. I so, schizophrenia, schizophrenia, right? like you, yeah. yeah, yeah, extroversion, neurotic, neuroticism, right? These yeah. are all constructs. Self esteem, self esteem, grit, right? It, I guess given that you, that's what you're working with always, you have to by necessity is working with constructs, right? As a social psychologist, yeah. So. The the debate then is over whether to use, when you're labeling the construct, whether to use terms that are very familiar to everybody, like disgust, or whether to do something else. And I guess the worry with the lexical fallacy is you pick a term like disgust. By, By just picking that label to describe the phenomenon that you're talking about, People are going to think that it exists because we use that word all the time as a natural right. kind of some sort because we call people neurotic, we call, we call people extroverted, we, call people, we, we say we're disgusted by things when in fact it might be that or at least our terminology for it might be covering all sorts of different incoherent things and it doesn't all it, it doesn't carve nature at the joints so yeah, yeah. no i was going to give a concrete example yeah. of uh, this problem in emotion research so if you're a spanish speaker uh, there is one word vergüenza that means both shame and embarrassment so if psychology had been developed by by largely spanish speaking speaking populations they when they made their list of the kinds of emotions that we have they would Put that on the list. And they would include instances in which you felt shame and instances in which you felt embarrassed. Now, are shame and embarrassment actually two different emotions that are failing to be distinguished by the one label, Bedwensa? I would think so. Like, I think that what that label is doing is it's, it's collapsing, it's hiding the fact that there might be two, two uh, constructs that that lump together as individual constructs that are shared with one label and that we might meaningfully make progress by understanding them as two separate constructs. But the word itself, like how would you ever think to distinguish those um, if you are encumbered by the word? So if you're them, you wouldn't distinguish those two. And for all we know, shame, we could get much more fine-grained about what we're talking about, right? Right, right, exactly. And so uh, it would be, I think here's what everybody's on board with. It would be a shame. It would be uh, terrible if there were real distinctions to be made, real progress to be made in studying something like emotions that we had never even thought about because we had missed the distinction because our our language just simply hadn't labeled it. Um, The, the, The enemy here is the lexical fallacy. And it seems like the solution is to turn away from our ordinary words when we're labeling a construct. And I guess I'm wondering, like, how that will work. I mean, he gives this extended example, Kamamuta. And I guess the idea is by studying that, he is able to give a theory that can be falsified and can be studied without unnecessary confusion and without begging any questions about whether this exists or doesn't. So it's a very, it allows for a cleaner sort of scientific investigation 
Right. That's right. Like clean is a nice way of saying it. Like you start with a really basic question. How many emotions are there? At the heart of what Fisk is saying is, well, you won't get the right answer if you just count the the emotion terms in your language. Like that's it. And so once you accept that that step isn't the right step, the whole process now lets you focus on things like the appraisals that give rise to the emotion, what context that emotion is likely to to occur in, what the physiological, you know, or the subjective feelings associated with that. All of those things, you get sort of a clarity because you realize you can't just ask people, hey, did you feel moved? Because that answer to that just means something really different in in different contexts. So I I think that it's a a a nice way of of sidestepping a whole bunch of of bias in measuring something as complex as a, as an emotion. Right. Yeah, and so it prevents you from assuming that that just because the word exists, the emotion exists, or it prevents you from over relying on self reports. At some level, though, right, isn't self-report going to be even with, you know, you say, okay, here are the stipulated aspects of this. You still have to rely on self-reports for, you know, feeling kama muta, right? Yeah. He gives an example that I think is informative here because you're right that at some level, self-report of of certain things is going to be vital in gathering the evidence for whether an emotion exists. And so he's, he points to the case of envy and jealousy. So um, envy and jealousy, if you just ask people, they very often say jealousy when they probably mean envy and envy when they probably mean jealousy. And so he's saying, if you just relied on that, like, are you feeling jealous? Um, You would, you might actually fail to realize that there really are these two distinct kinds of of emotional events. And one has a whole host of features that the other one does not. And even though we're not good at distinguishing it in English, or at least Americans aren't very good at distinguishing it, doesn't mean that you can't collect a whole bunch of evidence around that emotion um, so what makes you feel this way? What, like, what are the specifics about how you feel? So, uh, jealousy, for instance, is often taken to, to, to be a fear that you're going to lose what you already have. Whereas envy is that you really want something that somebody else has. Yeah. And those, it turns out, if you look at the, the way that people describe what they felt and why they were feeling that way, it does collapse into two buckets right those two emotions do it's just that people's labels for them are bad so if all you relied on was self-report of the emotion with those words you might lose that so there's some recent work by jim russell uh who's an emotion researcher on on disgust faces and he says you know everybody has been talking about the expression of disgust as if it's one thing but in reality there seem to be two faces associated with feeling disgust one is the uh a sick face like you're gonna gag like you're you're kind of feeling sick to your stomach, and the other one is the the like wrinkled nose, uh, like your nose turned up, um, and those uh, seem to be both in English at least we call those both disgust faces, mm-hmm. but not in every language, right? In 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 some languages, those are very they would consider those two very different faces. They're not they're not called the same uh, emotion when you show those two different faces. And 
it could very well be that discuss there's a cluster of things that we call disgust that are about uh you know nausea and sickness and another one that are that revolves around just rejection of of something that looks disgusting it could be that there's sexual disgust is yet another kind but we call all of those things disgust and so we might be losing out on what the real by the way this is what i really also want to talk about what is it, what does it mean to be a natural kind um, yeah but at least that's what Fisk keeps saying. He says, we want to get to the natural kinds. We want to get to carb nature at its joints. And the words we use are getting in our way. Yeah, I had that question too. One of the just interesting parts of this paper is the different translations of anger in other, yeah. for, in other cultures. And so in one, so if you translate uh, cult, uh, anger, the term anger in the Inuit Eskimo language that I won't try to pronounce... It is. It means to feel, express, or arouse hostility or annoyance. It could also be translated as kikuk, whose literal meaning is to be clogged up with foreign material. <laughs> and that mean in in that translation, angry. They believe that angry thoughts can kill, and that there's a wish to harm that's potentially lethal. Um, and so it's purely negative. It's purely something that is meant to harm somebody. Whereas in uh, a Micronesian Ifaluk, it might translate to song, which is more like what we would call righteous indignation, and it is something that is to advance the possibilities for peace and well-being. Um, to identify instances of behavior that threaten the the moral order, and so it has this much more positive community building connotation rather than the the word in the Inuit, which is purely negative and is something that is a threat. And then he goes through just a bunch of them, and all of them have these different connotations. They're picking out different features, and at the end he says, well our use of language and the way we define it to just assume that that is the the basic emotion rather than any of these other ones, that's the one that carves nature at the joints. That presumes that English alone among many languages fortuitously captures a scientifically valid taxonomy of emotions. And that's just linguistic chauvinism, he says. Yeah, I love that sentence. Yeah. Pure linguistic chauvinism. What do you think about that? I mean, I think there's something deeply right uh, about it. I, I think that that he goes out of his way to at least make some distinctions about what he's not saying. And I think that it's that um, th there's an interesting debate in emotion theory. On the one side, you have people who have argued for a universal set of basic emotions, like Ekman. Like Ekman, and and these people, Fisk thinks they've they've reified what we mean in English by anger, and they have gone about trying to show that every other every other culture, um, in this case, faces like uh, recognizes emotional faces as anger, and and then we make we make our our lists of basic emotions where we think nature has been carved its joints. Anger is one of those emotions. Um, you have so you have that those universalists. And then you have sort of on the on the way other side, you have people who are social constructionists about emotion. These people, I think, on, on first read, you might think that Fisk is arguing something like this, that um, there are no universal emotions. 
that emotions are uh, fundamentally socially constructed out of some basic material like valence or arousal, um, some just real, real basic uh, uh, quasi-emotional reactions that our body has, and then layered with concepts from culture and language, and that that's what an emotion is. So those people would look at this and say, well, yeah, anger is a different emotion in uh, the Elongat of the Philippines, and it's different in the Ifaluk, and it's different in Americans. Um, your mistake is to think that there ought to be any commonality. That's what emotions are. Emotions simply are that layer of cultural emo- uh, cultural knowledge, including including so it's uh, the, language. It's the layer of cultural knowledge, including language, over whatever the affect is. And it won't. You can't expect it to be universal because everyone has different language and and different cultural norms. Right, and it could be universal, but it would be universal contingently upon everybody finally adopting the same culture and language. Right. Um, and uh, uh, Fisk thinks this is wrong as well. Right. He thinks that no, there are very clearly feelings that are likely universal, like moved or what? Wait, I'm not using it. Shoot. Kamamuta. Kamamuta. From the French. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, that are universals. And just because you don't have a word for it doesn't mean you're not feeling it. Um, which I think is, is right. I think that, that like is analogy that, that Fisk makes in the paper as well. Like with color perception, we all have eyes that roughly see the same spectrum of light, give or take. Yeah. Right? You know, some people with poorer eyesight or colorblindness but very very obviously it's been shown quite a bit that different languages encode for different chunks of that spectrum so some some languages have one word that covers green and blue what would be green and blue for us he thinks that if you're a complete constructionist you're basically admitting that green and blue aren't a distinction to to be made that these people are uh, their whole color experience is just right what their language and culture tell them. So the gra- they look at grass and the sky and it looks the same, or it looks like... The- yeah, they're like, yeah, yeah same yeah. color. That's right. Um, and he thinks that that's not right. He thinks that, that uh, the things that constitute a color experience are, are features of our biology um, that are independent of whatever language you have. And he thinks the same about emotional experience. So, so you know... Uh, you know, I I didn't know the word Schadenfreude, right? I but but once it was explained to me, I was like, oh yeah, I've totally felt right. that. Right? It's not like I was. It's not like all of a sudden I had a new emotion when I learned the word. Um, I I, I think that's kind of an absurd uh, an absurd view. It's, so the t- two different Eskimo words that could translate anger. The debate is over w- where is the proper place to to cut nature at the joints. So like that's like that's at the heart of it. That's at the heart of it, right? And so if the Inuits have two or three different words for it, maybe they're right that that's where you should cut it. You know, or maybe like uh, if it's the Micronesians with song, that that's a distinct emotion of its own. And if they were doing a theory of emotions, that would be a basic emotion. It's not that culture doesn't influence how we group the terms. He thinks that it does. 
So, yeah, this is where maybe where we should start talking about natural kinds, because what does he mean then by a natural kind? If you think, if you're a universalist and think, you know, we're all feeling the same feelings and there is a right way to distinguish them, and, and what does that mean even? Right. Yeah. He, he points to hints. He says, I, you know, at this point he says, well, I'm not an emotion theorist, so I'm not here to tell you exactly what features ought to collapse into, you know, one construct. Uh, but here's what, what he definitely wants to avoid, right? He, he, so, so suppose there are, you know, there are 7,000 languages. Suppose there are um, thousands upon thousands of, of words for anger that, each pick up on something specific. So uh, road rage, right? Road rage, we might call it, we we have a very clear understanding culturally of like when people get road rage, what kind of people they are, what happens when they get road rage, what they look like, what you feel like when you experience it. Um, He doesn't want to say that um, there is a single emotion for every possible uh, feeling that we're having, right? He really wants to find a way to collapse these. So road rage um, would be a say subset they, of some other. A subset of anger, yeah. right? It is anger under these conditions, but it's not not anger. Right. I think that he thinks that if you take a look at um, the uh, uh, appraisals, that is the kinds of judgments that tend to lead to, uh, to anger in this case, and you look at... Um, a particular kind of physiological arousal and you look at a particular kind of of consequence that like we should be able to find that there are common features to uh to a whole bunch of instances of anger like there would be for kamamuta where we don't have a word a good word for it but this might include being moved at a pixar film or being moved at the kindness of a stranger or or whatever um and that if you then, upon looking at all those data, you say, oh, there's something really common to all of these experiences. They seem to be uh, evaluating what somebody did as bad or wrong, and they want to bring that person uh, to justice, right? If you find that, then that might be a criteria for carving nature at its joint. And again, he's very under, under, he under describes this because he admits that there is no, you know, like, not every emotion is going to have a distinct physiology. No, no one criteria is going to be, um, he doesn't want to go down just to making the claim that it's all just physiology because he thinks that that's missing something important at the, at the higher level of organization of the mind. Yeah. Um, but I think he leaves it open uh, as to what, what those criteria would be. So what do you think about that? Like, so like something like disgust. Honestly, I have, a, I have an increasing problem with reliance on natural kinds as a concept, as a term, as something that we should be looking to find. Because the more I've read, and the term natural kind is obviously a much broader term about about just the way nature organizes itself, but it has been tossed about a whole lot in emotion research. And I think that it is really misguided to think that emotions will ever be a thing like rocks and atoms and H2O, which are, you know, what people might describe as natural kinds. I think that to think that we are um, somehow not imposing organization upon nature by our, by 
our categories that that we are uncovering the true way that nature divides itself for something as complex as psychology is just is just wrong i think that when we find things like extroversion where we have this cl- cluster of behaviors and feelings that stick together then we're just making a statistical claim about how organisms with this kind of organization tend to tend to you know how those behaviors tend to cluster there's there's nothing magical there's nothing like ontologically pops into existence when we describe that it's super contingent if there were organisms that had slightly different biology we might find that every time they experience anger they smile right and i wouldn't think that that ruins our emotion theory i think like what role is the the term emotion and this specific emotion trying to do in a theory of yours and if it's trying to say explain why uh, a boy in the in the Ilongot of the Philippines goes headhunting, then that serves a useful role. Like it's saying like, oh, okay, there are these things that led for him to feel this. That feeling itself then led him to act in this way. And that works. That's perfectly fine. It's, it's, it, so y- the word natural kind is just, it's a red herring. But you're, but you're, you're rejecting the kind of social constructivist view. Right. Yeah. I think there could be something very real about the way that the human mind organizes itself into these clusters. And I think that saying that people feel this cluster of, uh, you know, experience this cluster of symptoms when they're feeling angry or whatever word we want to use is, is true in some deep sense. And it might be non-contingent upon the word they're using to describe it. It's just that there's no there's no magic criteria to let you know that you've discovered something real. And it would be weird if there was, it's, you know what, it's much like the, the discussion we had about Dennett's view of the self. Right. To me, an emotion is maybe a, a slightly more well-organized way of, of, um, you know, maybe, maybe they're like one step closer to being objectively measurable than, than the self, but they're right around this, like the same, kind of thing so it's a theoretical fiction that is picking up on something and and it still has some explanatory power but if you're looking if you're looking to find some sort of ontological basis for it you won't find it because that's you're making a category mistake right um unless you are okay saying that something has ontological uh, status if it meets the criteria of being something nebulous like it, right? You could say, well, no, the self is real. I just mean like baseball is real. Like you're stupid to tell me it's not real. Well, so what do you, th- do you think Alan Fisk though thinks that there is some sort of magical ontological distinction between, like, are, is this just a difference in terminology, how you think of natural kinds and how he's thinking of natural kinds in this context? Or do you think, this is a real substantive disagreement about how nature works. I, my, my real thoughts about what's going on here is that Alan Fisk, this is not an insult to Alan Fisk because this is not what he does. But I think that he is using that term, natural kind, in a way that m- many emotion researchers have, have borrowed that term from philosophy. And in a way that um, what it betrays a it's a stopping point at your thought it's just and like i've used it that way before like are we carving nature at its joints when we're talking about anger and fear i 
I think that upon reflection, you have to flesh out what you mean by natural kind. And Fisk, for whatever reason, he might fully have a view fleshed out. I'm not saying he doesn't. It's just that he doesn't view it as his task in this paper. Um, he wants to improve the methods by which we call something an emotion and study emotions. And maybe that ontological argument can be had in some other way. Um, but I think that that's dangerous because he is making some clearly ontological claims. Right. Right. And he's coming up with a theory of Kamamuta that if it's not falsified, then he will think this is a real it's thing. It's a real thing. It's exactly. Real. So do you think then about emotions, like I think about a lot of philosophical concepts like knowledge and maybe responsibility and and free will that they pick up on something for sure, but if you try to come up with some sort of theory with really defined criteria, the more fine-grained you try to get, the more precise you try to get about what it actually is, then you're, you're going to go astray at that point. It's more of a family resemblance. Yeah. I, so it's like I knowledge I, like disgust or knowledge like anger or something like that. So I think that there are slightly different problems with understanding knowledge in this way versus disgust. And I, t I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that you think that the concept knowledge isn't uh, a concept that any sort of non-modern philosopher, non-modern analytic philosopher has ever really needed in that specific way. Yeah, so maybe knowledge isn't the best example, because maybe that, I think, is in a different category than something like moral responsibility, which I don't think that yeah. of. I actually think right, like, yeah, that, philosophical that's good, yeah. investigation into it has, has borne fruit, and it's only when you try to get too precise with your theories that, you're so that you've now starting to lose the, the thread. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, we, we, we had a, uh, a researcher come just a couple of weeks ago to give a talk in our department and she talked about, um, uh, emotions and animals. And she's very much a social constructionist. She thinks that it's wrong to say that what a rat is feeling when it gets shocked, um, is fear. She says that that's, that's, uh, uh, anthropomorphic. It's dumb. It's unscientific. Um, I think that, Things like disgust and fear and anger, they have some family resemblance features. Um, they're like fuzzy categories. But I think that where, where I can say that they're real in any deep sense is that, take disgust, I genuinely believe that um, our response to things like putrid meat or feces, um, unless we've learned otherwise, is really a result of um, a particular set of selective pressures that gave rise to this particular response. So all human beings who are experiencing this kind of like aversive avoidance response to a particular set of, of stimuli, I, I think there's something there. I think that all of the layers of cultural knowledge play a deep role in our experience, what we remember, when we think we should feel it, all of the things like when we use it metaphorically, uh, all, all of those things. But I think there is a core to emotional experience that's like the raw material that we can use to be on safe ground for some emotions. Weirdly, I think the, co the category emotion is actually way more useless than like, some of the specific whether or not, emotions. Yeah. Right. Because people have argued, like, is disgust an emotion uh, or is it more like a biological reflex? I don't care. Right. Like, all I want to do is describe it. 
So are you going to call discuss something else in future work? <laughs> Sometimes I actually try to resort to the Spanish term asco, which is just grossed out because it doesn't have like the moral or social connotation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done some work that we didn't ever published on how different languages, uh, like in what context different languages use their analog for the term discuss. So in we're, in languages like French, it's very much can be used as a social uh, term. Like it's it's fair to say that this con artist disgusts me. In in other languages, uh, you see the word disgust that we would translate disgust much more likely to be used in the context of food and you know like bathroom right. stuff. Um, so I I think that we've as a field completely under like understudied it's exactly what rosin was saying we jumped straight to developing a theory of disgust and anger and fear without bothering to check whether or not these categories of things were shared by everybody linguistically it's actually kind of ridiculous and 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 the reason that you did that according to fisk is that you were tricked by the lexical fallacy well they must be real because we have words for it and now we can start developing theories of it by testing people and asking for self-reports about. I think that's fair, and and we're. I think we can be tricked in even a more a, a more pernicious way, which is that my response um, to understanding that there might be different, like in Polish, this this woman that he cites quite a bit. I can't I can't do just her name, Verzybica. Um, who's a who's a Polish woman who wrote a, a book recently I haven't read, but she's pointed out that I think in Polish um, there are multiple words for the one word discussed in English. And I remember thinking, well, that's that's weird that they've divided the same emotion into three. <laughs> right? Like it's not it's not even just right. it's like pure linguistic chauvinism. Pure linguistic, yeah. <laughs> It's like, no, no, I'm aware that the Inuit have, you know, seven words for snow. That's not true. But imagine. But like, isn't it weird that they have seven words for the same fucking thing? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. He then applies this to his own work with Tej Ryan violence. Um, He says, consequently, violence is a pernicious scientific construct unless used in an explicitly stipulated, clearly delineated technical sense. And then he gives an example of his book with Tej. And then he says, and even then, Tej Rai and I would have been less vulnerable to misunderstanding if we had avoided using a vernacular lexeme uh, violence to denote our construct instead of calling it, say, um, I don't know what that Greek letter is. Do you? Yeah, no, a it looks horseshoe. like a U, a horseshoe. <laughs> yeah, it's a horseshoe. Uh, so <laughs> that's embarrassing, but um, I, I mean that's interesting, right? Because a lot of you know the book was that violence can be moral, right? And I actually think moral is yeah. the construct that they might not have <laughs> that invited more misunderstanding than violence, right? And that's why yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, that they got into trouble when they were, you know, it's like gang rape can be moral in this very strict sense. But if you say that, that is, <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's an example, right? Like moral is sometimes a construct, and they do stipulate 
what moral means to them, which is essentially that it uh, fits within one of those moral frameworks, the four moral frameworks, but we have these other connotations. And so when you're scientifically communicating with somebody else, you can do all the stipulating you want as they did, and it will still invite misunderstanding. You will still be talking about diff- different things, and your disagreements in that sense will be unproductive. Yeah. Our language is so not fit for scientific precision. You know, I was listening to uh, another podcast that I that I like called Hello Internet, and one of the guys was saying that... Um, he used to be a physics high school teacher and he would say uh, he was just using the example in a completely different context of when you use the terms work and energy and, and velocity Um, in physics, they have such a very clear, precise meaning. But when you give people this, you know, some examples of like, well, when this is doing work, they take a whole bunch of other like uh, concepts with them. Right. So it's not, it's, it's not that helpful when you use those in a non-physics context. And I think I think that's that's totally the case. Now, I don't know though. There is something really handy about being able to use a common language um, you know, and say uh well, I, I want to talk about disgust, but by disgust I mean, you know, and then put disgust asterisk. Now everybody at least has some sort of clear starting point. Um Sure, they may misremember. They may think that I meant one thing or another, but but the other error is that they just never get what I'm talking. Like the concept kama muta. Like, will I remember this? Right. Like next week? No, I mean, and he talks about this is the downside of this. I mean, number one, you know, from a incentive standpoint, all of a sudden you're not getting written up in the Atlantic if. You're talking about kama muta <laughs> rather than, you know, the emotion of being moved or empathy or something like that. Compersion. Yeah. Compersion. Right. Too. You might get an eon, but you... Uh, <laughs> the Let's not cast aspersions on that wonderful magazine eon. Oh, yeah. I forgot to mention, you have a very nice profile. It's like, are we never allowed to make fun of eon again? I know we can make fun of it. Okay. Just we just need a moment of respect. Yeah. <laughs> just give me thirty it's seconds. A very nice article. Um, and you should be very flattered and honored by it, <laughs> even though you were committing the lexical fallacy left and right. Clearly, um, yeah. It, it's not only that it won't get popular; it won't have popular appeal, but it will be very hard for people to like to to remember it. I mean, this is an interesting problem, actually. Like, just to like we have. We have enough going on in our brains that we don't have to learn all these different words, and this is something we make fun of philosophy a lot for. But it's it's kind of what he's recommending is that we, you know, instead of calling it disgust, call it schmishmust, right. schmanger, you know, like, and 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 I guess that's coming from that same place, right? Is like trying to not have all these other connotations. Um, infecting your investigation yeah and really if what you if you really just care about doing the science probably a better idea to like make the error in that direction like a precision and and then later on you know when you're communicating you can decide what to use but but um i i really like i'll say what i really like about this whole approach is 
you know, I, there is a ton of open questions about what a psychological construct is, what it even means to say that we have evidence for a real thing, all of those things notwithstanding, that you would take a moment to try to remove yourself from the bias that you have um, and just collect good descriptive data. Yeah. Um, if that's if that's the only thing that comes from this kind of approach, then I'm cool with it because, you know, collecting unbiased descriptive data is something that I don't do well and our field doesn't do well. And when he's talking about like what was involved in in this, like I'm like, wow, fuck, like I'm not the common. When am I ever going to go spend yeah. <laughs> 10 weeks in like a, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is part of being an anthropologist. I think that that. um in this article, Fisk is saying, look, uh, you can read, like not even anthropologists have been to 50 different cultures, right? Like they usually specialize in, right. in just whatever they specialize in. And they rely on the ethnographies of their colleagues to, to, you know, bring together some, some theory. And I don't know, like it is, this is the sad sociological aspect of it. I need somebody to hold my hand to tell me what good anthropology is and where to read it and who to avoid and what's stupid and what's accepted and what's, you know, and I think we speak so much about interdisciplinary stuff and like we, we give all this like, you know, mock praise or, or we say that we're searching for interdisciplinary researchers, but this is the kind of true interdisciplinariness that's going to bear fruit. Where somebody like Fisk has bothered to publish in a psychology journal numerous times already, and and give me exactly that, yeah, right. Like there are a lot of things that I've never heard of that he talked about here that now I know to go look up, including like many of the words that he uses, like Lexi, <laughs> including all the GRE <laughs> words that he uses. <laughs> I get it, Fisk. You're educated. Your dad was a famous professor. <laughs> do you think though that this sociologically speaking like what if let's say he's right and everybody agreed that he's right like could it happen would you stop all of a sudden stop uh stop labeling things according to their normal english terms would you stop doing so many experiments and start doing and start uh <laughs> you know, doing unstructured interviews, which from what I understand, psychologists make fun of because of all the potential for bias and subjective interpretation and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I save all my unstructured uh, conversation for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think that, yeah, it definitely has an effect and, and, and no, I'm not going to go start doing unstructured interviews, but I do, I am more likely to do work on asking people under what conditions they felt this or that. And I have done more work on um, looking at discussed in other languages because of influences like this. Um, in fact, Vir Zibika like, had a paper that opened my eyes to this whole problem a long time ago. And so I have to credit credit her. Now, I'm getting old. So I, I hope that the youngins pick up more of this, but at the very least, I think that I know not what not to conclude, um, based on the nature of evidence that we have. Like, I, I think I am more likely to, to seek out cross-cultural evidence, but, but it's going to be, it's slow, you know, it's slow. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's fair. 
I'm I'm bullish on it. Let's just say that. Like the way that that Fisk's uh, um, relational stuff influenced the field, right? Like a lot of people just read it inside it as if it were just anything else to read inside. But I think that it between Henrik, Fisk, Fessler, these these people have really had an influence on our understanding of human nature, and they've brought it over to psychology in a way that I think a new generation is getting trained to look at in that way. I think that's good. Yeah, I mean the whole weird thing that Henrik yeah. did is had a huge effect. It's like part of like a interdisciplinary terminology now. And everybody knows to at least pretend to be worried about that. <laughs> yeah. That's what you get. A lot of disingenuous, like hand waving, like, like, well, we know this is a weird population. Uh, okay. Well, let's, I think that that's a good time to wrap it up. Okay. But before we wrap it up, I want to know what, what you really think, because I've talked a lot, but, but I think that you probably have a different take. On so this, you have 30, 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, you get an hour, <laughs> I get 30 seconds. Yeah, I, I, no, I mean, I'm really intrigued by it. I, you know, I, I tend to think that we err too much on the side of thinking we can get more objective about it than we can rather than just admitting that there is some projection that is inescapable. I mean, I don't know if this is a constructivist side or if it's more an epistemological stance where we have to study this stuff with the knowledge that the investigation itself will has a kind of perspective that we can't step outside of. So a little bit of like doom quine kind of like there's no... There's no way to step outside of the theory. There's no pure data that you're going to be able to get and to admit that. Um, but, you know, there are times where he think he sounds like he wants to deny that and, and just like we just need to do a get better job getting at the pure data than we already have. And then we'll be able to carve nature at the joints in this universal way. So when he's saying that, I disagree with it. But so much of what he's saying, I totally agree with when he's diagnosing problems about people who are doing that just without knowing that they're doing that, you know, in social right. psychology. So I don't know. That's my... My certainly a lot of the diagnosis that he that he makes, I completely agree with. That's no big surprise. I'm not sure if I agree with what he thinks, you know, will happen once we stop doing that. Everything will be fixed. <laughs> Everything will be fixed. Um, I think that you're that you're right in that it the most modest, say, way of of that I have of understanding what this might contribute is that at the very least it sh it shows us that we are failing or we're potentially failing by our very own standards so it yeah it, if we think that the right way to do things is to be as objective as possible here's a clear way in which we are shown to not be very objective to be falling prey to this and so if our goal and our beliefs are that we can get to cleaner sources of data um then Pointing to this barrier is good. Now, you know, I, I tend to agree with you. There's no such thing as clean data, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but whatever. That, like, we'll save that is, for our philosophy. There's less bias. Yeah. yeah there's, <laughs> less, there's cleaner data. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'd love to do like a broader philosophy of science 
um, discussion about some of this stuff. Con- I, I have a dream of a just a perfect episode on construct validity. I feel like we could get into another fight over construct validity, even if we don't uh, totally understand it. But <laughs> uh, let's let's aim for that. How about that? Let's aim for it. Good. All right. Well, um, if you want to stick around, we're going to have like a ten-minute discussion of Mr. Robot um, after the outro. But uh, if you're not keeping up with Mr. Robot, and you should be, because it's really good this season. Um, Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Do not listen to this if you haven't seen episode, <laughs> what was it, seven of this? Episode yeah. seven, season yeah. four, episode seven. Okay, yeah, definitely, because <laughs> this is the one, this is one reveal that actually, it, it might not be the central reveal, but it actually, I think, would impact a rewatching of the show even more. So, like, bri- like brilliantly acted and brilliantly directed, and the structure was clever, and, like, it was gorgeously shot. The, to like it was just the moment that it was that it started becoming obvious that what the truth was was that Elliot was molested by his dad I thought to myself no like I could see it for like you could it was telegraphed earlier um not he, earlier like, in no, the show I mean there no, no, there, earlier in that scene. earlier in the scene yeah in the scene yeah um please don't make it be that like pl- like and I, it's not that I don't think it's a deep, distressing revelation about Elliot, and it's not even that I don't think that it explains a lot uh, of what's gone on. It's just that, like, oh, it turns out he was molested by his dad. Seems like a like a cheap move. Like it seems like uh, like a you know after school special, like different strokes bicycle episode like <laughs> different where <laughs> i don't remember i don't remember gary well, there's being, like a really distressing getting molested Did um, he? where it's like uh he narrowly escaped getting molested but i think he left dudley in there it was one of the most distressing episodes of tv <laughs> um uh, i blocked but, that out but it i just, created a new identity <laughs> to forget that <laughs> And yeah, that this is like, oh yeah, this is what, what's been going on all along. Like it, it didn't seem like this was going to be, that this was even close to a show about that sort of thing that, that, um, that it, it, it's a reveals like a, like if, if we found out that Bill Murray in, in Groundhog Day, uh, if it was because of a brain tumor, you know, you'd be like, uh, I get, I guess, like, I guess that explains why somebody can be hallucinating this, reliving the day over and over again. Like there was something just leave it at Mr. Robot and 
and not have this heartbreakingly emotional scene where I was molested as a kid. It's well, I mean, yeah. okay, I'm interested that you had this reaction because I didn't uh, at all, and I think most people didn't. If you look at the reaction to the to the show, and I'm trying to yeah. figure out why you had it. So I. I am too, because it was super, it was like uncontrollable. Like I actually was yeah. like, no, no, yeah. like I can't believe this. And, yeah. and and it was so well done. I mean, Rami Malek's performance and also the, the actress that plays Krista was just yeah. phenomenal. Like it felt like, be, even yeah. though obviously there's not a guy pointing a gun at some <laughs> patient's head when, uh, Vera was great too. And that whole thing, I loved the yeah, kind of counterpoint, was. the comic counterpoint of his two, um, uh, you know, the muscle or whatever his yeah. muscle, but, the um, they were very funny. They were, one of them reminded me of Snoop, uh, from the wire yeah 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 she's actually a rapper named young young ma yeah. uh but so like all of that was really well done and then when the reveal happened which i had never predicted and i don't think many people had i yeah. thought there's like one or two people in, on reddit there's a few um you know i was trying like i i thought back and i was, thought well it makes sense i mean this is a damaged guy like a really psychologically damaged guy he has created this big end identity he has this massive social anxiety that has been there from the very beginning he doesn't like being t hugged or touched at all he is um he's paranoid he, he you know so so there there were these deep psychological he's a substance problems, abuser but he's a substance abuser <laughs> and at the same time, he's he's had this uh, mother that we've known has been an abusive mother and a father that we always thought was his only friend and that was actually a really good dad taking him to movies and uh, and, and, and helping him deal with the, his mother and the problems with her. And then you realize, no, well, he was actually sexually abusive. Now, the way I understand it is that doesn't mean that they didn't have at times a good relationship and that he wasn't taking him to see Pulp Fiction or, or, or taking him to the Mr. Robot store um, to make him feel better or that he was only doing those things so that he could groom him to be molested. It just like captures what's so fucked up about those kinds of relationships, those kinds of where the father is actually does love the son and the son does love the father, but the father is also doing this kind of pretty much unforgivable thing to the to the child. And it I don't know, I thought it added a layer of because if we just never find out why he's like the way he is. I, I I could live with that, but I, I you know like to to come up with something that's psychologically plausible that doesn't that when you look back at the show seems to fit pretty well with a lot of the things even though we didn't um, we didn't suspect it at the time, but in retrospect is okay I can see that, and then maybe Mister Robot is a projection of the good side of his dad or the dad that he wished he had or something like that. Uh, I, I thought I thought all of that seems fine, so I'm really surprised the 
that you react I, this yeah. way. And and I don't see I, that it's so, cheap either. Yeah, okay, so it's just to be clear, I don't think that it was uh unfair or out of the blue. I do think that Esmail has had this planned all along. I do think that it explains a lot of what's going on. I think that my response to it was a product of a belief that it's a tropey way to reveal something about a character. It's like a if he had an identical twin and that also explained a whole bunch of things, right? That like it wasn't him that blacked out, right? It was an identical twin. That, like that's the level at which like you were molested by your father. Like that's how it felt to me. It felt schlocky. Um, and all of a sudden he's having like these deep, intense emotions. The stuff about like, and everybody's point is like, oh, it makes sense. He didn't want to be touched. I, that didn't need explaining. Like that is very much the kind of personality that you see amongst people who are heavily into tech and coding, right? This is like a characteristic spectrum behavior where you're very socially anxious. You don't like to be touched. Your relationship is with your computer and your code. It didn't, that that wasn't calling out for explanation at all. Like it, it seems. It seems okay, fine. But he, it was very extreme with Elliot. And what did call out for an explanation was the Mister Robot and his existence. And 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 this, we had an explanation, I guess, that he died of cancer, which we should talk about. Do we think that that he really did die of cancer? Or did he, uh, did he kill him? Or, or <laughs> yeah, or is he in prison? I mean, we saw his gravestone, and people have said that he died. So I think he did die, and I actually think he probably died of cancer. But you can look back on a lot of those conversations where he says he's sick and read it a different way now. Yeah. Um, but so why was he intent on avenging his father's death from cancer? Well, so you texted me about this Alderson Loop thing. Um, yeah, that is uh, a term for some sort of bug in a computer that can only that can't be. Uh, it's like it, it it puts it on this infinity loop, and it only uh, and and you have to restart it to like yeah. restart the whole program. Well, yeah, at the very the beginning of the running, it's yeah. At the very beginning of the show. He doesn't know who Mr. Robot is. He doesn't know that it's his father. He doesn't know who Darlene is. And so I think he's blocked out at that point that... I think he's... Yeah, we catch him right after a reboot. Right, we, we catch like him right after. a hard after. reset. He had to like reformat the yeah, drive. Exactly. So, so that's why he was avenging his dad because he didn't know that the dad... Because he actually thought, yeah. yeah. And then, but Mr. Robot knows. You get the sense that he, yeah, he did know because he was begging Krista and Vera not to have this come out. So he does know. Um, so he is a side of Elliot he, that that knows this, even when Elliot. But doesn't. he played an integral an integral role in the Five Nine hack. But that's presumably diff- also the Five Nine hack isn't to to avenge wasn't just to avenge. I mean, most of his to... actions are to try to bring down E Corp because of the killing of Angela's dad and I mean of Angela's yeah. mom and and, and Elliot's dad. And that yeah, so I don't know. Maybe he does I mean, even if he was a molester, it would still be bad that a chemical plant 
or a plant to build a whatever we don't know um, was giving people cancer, including his dad and Angela's mom. Um, You know, I, I think that, that, that it, it will all make sense. Like I, I buy it. And I think that Esmail will come through with explaining some of these things, like whether you were asking whether Darlene knows or not, which I don't think she does. I don't think so Um, either. Yeah. Yeah. And she was young enough not to. Yeah. In the closet. She was very young and he was presumably protecting her. Right. um, Because he didn't want her to to go through the same thing. And that's a story that I've heard before. I don't know how clinically accurate it is, but, but when somebody sees that their abusive parent is about to do the same thing to their younger sibling, like that's when they they actually do something about it. Um, But I, it took me out of that moment in a way that was so jarring because it, it seems so, it seemed so tropey to me um, that, is is it that much of a trope? him out of the blue. Like, that's what I can't tell because I definitely, it definitely felt to me like a trope. And so what I'm wondering whether I've just maybe been exposed to more things where that's like the, the reveal, like, it, you know, I mean, like, it, was it feels like Peak. a soap opera. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but, but there's a nod to Twin Peaks. <laughs> um, uh, so I don't know. I don't know what, what, what is making me feel like it's such a trope? I do know that uncontrollably it took me out and I still found it very weird that Vera would respond like he did with that compassion. And I actually thought for a moment, I know other people thought this and I think, I think Esmail would get a lot of shit if this was actually what was happening. I thought that uh, Elliot was faking it to bring Vera to a vulnerable moment where they could escape. Oh my God. And I thought, well, if he pulls that off, then I respect the plot. Yeah. I don't think so. Because I, I don't think so either, but I, I thought that might be a way to get out of the, 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 you know, the, what I thought at the moment was. That's a, okay. Now that you said that, Elliot has been very manipulative this season. He's been like what he did with <laughs> Olivia and the um, the oxy in her drink. Yeah, I I just think I I think he can't like I don't think it would be ballsy as hell because I think a lot of people would be angry and maybe rightly angry at him. But if yeah. if the point is don't be angry at me, be angry at Elliot. This is this is who he is right now <laughs> this the depths of his like yeah yeah this is i i yeah. just don't see I, it because um also krista who we've we've been we were meant to think that she's really good at what she does seems to have yeah. diagnosed it already a long time ago uh, how Vera uh, reacted although, though did strike me as very consistent with what his plan was he said he was going to break him down totally and then build him so that he can build him back up and then that plus the fact that the revelation was also something that was true about vera allowed him you know like to to treat him both with compassion but also as part of his plan which is i'm gonna once he's completely destroyed if i'm the one to help build him back up then he's going to trust me and we're going to conquer all the corners and sell all the meth in new york 
<laughs> by all the yeah. real estate. Um, do you think Vera was being disingenuously manipulative then? Yeah. I, I mean, I think this was his plan, right? Like his plan was Yeah, but, to, did, but do you think his response of tears and like, I see you, do you think that was genuine compassion or that was part of his act to break? I, I think it was both. No, it was already broken. Like, this was the building back up. And so those two things can go hand in hand. I think his genuine compassion and his manipulation are now geared at the same goal. And so I think, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. It, I, I didn't love Vera in the previous episode before this. I thought he was great in this. I mean, he did an amazing job in this. And just, he's fine. It just, Yeah. It just struck me as something that was very odd for him to all of a sudden, oh, wait, bro, you were molested? Like, now, now I'm going to cry a tear and hug you. Like, it seems like, yeah, I killed your girlfriend. But, like, now that I know your dad touched you, like, it happened to me too, bro. Like, twinsies. I know. I mean, like, but, I mean, he literally said that that's what he was going to do in the previous episode. He was going to be, he's going to build him back up once he not destroyed him but that doesn't mean that he has to genuinely that, feel that it it will be through genuine compassion right i believe that he could have manipulated his way through through that I, I, um, there, there it's it doesn't have to be it can be both i think right no i know but it can't be that both he was genuine and not and what i'm saying i is hard for me to believe is that he was genuine oh i think he was i think it was clear in the performance and in yeah, yeah it just I, makes sense yeah. like if they were if he had also been molested and then used that as some sort of engine for his anger and some fuel for his power that he could try to convey that to Elliot, like that, it makes sense that he would feel genuinely moved by that. I guess I don't, I just don't remember Vera being genuinely moved by anybody else's plight. Like that was the thing about him, right? Like he was so fucking cold. Was he? Um, what if Krista? What if Krista was? Um, so it clearly wasn't in his files that he was molested, right? It was alluded to, maybe, or hinted at. Yeah. So what if Krista, in the moment, spontaneously came up with the abuse story to have Elliot play off of it, <laughs> like he realized what's going on? Because, like, if it they wasn't, I, you would think that that's what. Yeah. Yeah, you'd think that it would be in the notes explicitly. I suspect he's been molested. That was another thing where I was like, wait, how does she know he was molested? He never told her? Like, she's just inferring it from... The baseball bad story. Um, yeah, but that's a big leap. Like, unless Mr. Robot told her. Well, you're a social psychologist, not a clinical therapist. So. <laughs> I'm closer to that, though, than you are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I did. I did read somewhere that uh, a, a psychiatrist or a therapist who works with people who have been sexually abused said that that was a yeah, as accurate a depiction of that kind of conversation, minus the gun uh, and the other person in the room, that they have ever seen on film or TV. That's, I don't want to take it all away from the craft with which, I mean, this is, this is pinnacle TV. Anyway, uh, well, we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, Maybe we'll do more of this. Uh, We'll just never talk about Mr. Robot except in this context. (laughs) I know. (laughs) 
I know I found myself telling like I, I was telling Nikki, I was like, wait, is there any chance that you'll ever watch this show? And she's like, no, yeah, yeah, there is. I was like, okay, because then I can't tell you at all. Oh, because it, really yeah. what I'm I'm looking for. No, I'm looking forward to rewatching it with all of this information in mind. Um, it would be hard to watch this, though, knowing what you know and the, with another person that doesn't. Maybe. We'll see. I, I'm oh, excited yeah, to see yeah, where yeah. this goes. I think Krista, the fact that Krista is with him, you know, presumably if Krista wasn't there, he would do another re- hard reboot maybe after something like this. Yeah. But now yeah. that Krista's there right. and the show's about to end in six episodes, maybe that's not going to happen. And <laughs> so we'll see. And, I, and this, yeah. this, this hasn't told us who the third is. Right, like no, there's no, definitely some ideas that I have, and it hasn't told us what White Rose's <laughs> contraption is. So right. there's still a lot. But when White Rose is saying that he needs to know we're on the same side, do you think it's going to be like she was abused too? Because I, <laughs> everybody I don't think I can abused, stomach that, but, man. But... Yeah, I don't think I'll be able to stomach that. Like they're going to uncover a pedophile ring with their new cyclotron. Now, I think we already found White Rose's trauma source. It's that yeah. uh, that lover she had who committed, suicide. Um, who committed suicide because she wouldn't uh, take the job in America. Um, yeah. yeah, so we'll see. The I I'm I'm I I also think like I forgot I had to read this that the the big CEO meeting the meeting of all the Deus Group members is that night. It's that same night. He has to go like it's like it starts right. in like two hours after Vera yeah, was killed. That's right. So he has to deal with God, that man. probably next episode. It's hard to wait. Darlene is, it's is hard captured. To wait. I forgot about this, but Darlene was captured by the Dark Army. It's just a lot of shit. Oh shit! Yeah, it's a lot. Ah man, he's doing an amazing job at this. All right, <laughs> we're done. I'm stopping recording. <laughs> it's elegance. Elegance. We're still not good at like being professional in that way, you know? <laughs>